0: Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. I'm Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a CMIO, a practicing physician, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I'm introducing Dr. Brett Daniel, who is a CMIO with Providence St. Joe's. And if you know anything about them, they were at the heart of the epidemic when it started and have been leading us in terms of educating us about what they've been doing, what's working and what's not. Brett, thank you for coming on and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Mark. Um, I appreciate you having me on.
0: So if you would, just so people get a feel for what your span of control is, what you do, tell us about yourself and how you got into your
1: role. Yeah, you bet. So I'm a family doc. I've been out here in Seattle now, gosh, longer than you can remember over 20 years. And I think probably like a lot of us, you know, that natural curiosity where you learn to experiment, accountability and leadership are the traits that I think got me into the CMIO realm over time. So if you can imagine when I was a kid back in Montana, I was the guy they would ask to fix the VCR when you're growing up. And then I led a practice from paper to Epic. Uh, over a decade ago now here in Seattle, and then uh, came to Swedish and led Swedish through a large instance migration. So we actually moved five hospitals and hundreds of clinics that had EPIC onto Providence's Washington, Montana EPIC. And then from there, now oversee the Swedish hospitals and the Washington, Montana hospitals all together. So that's, let's see, 17 hospitals and hundreds of clinics and thousands of docs is the way I think of it.
0: That's a full-time job, no doubt. So
1: (laughs) yeah, Yeah, I mean, we are a fully matrixed organization like we all are these days. And my boss, Michael Marino is the SVP CMIO for the system. And so he interacts more at the system level and then I cater more to the regional level. So interact with the regional executives and more at the local needs and, and docs and things like that. So it's a, it's a fun role and I like being close to the action and trying to help navigate through this.
0: So when you say navigate through this, we want to know more about that. You're in one of the hotspots and you were an early blogger, which was what caught my eye. That was almost a month ago I saw your first blog hit there. (laughs) Describe those first few days for me. What was it like for a CMIO in the center of what was just starting to be, for us, a big deal?
1: Yeah, it's been a wild ride. I mean, it feels like a long time ago. I think we're all living where those days feel like weeks right now. You know, in in January, we had that first case in the United States. So someone came back from China, was in the community for a few days, and then had symptoms and reported. And we had the first case go to Providence Everett here. And so right away there, we rapidly implemented a travel screen throughout our epic. Have you been to these regions? Are you having symptoms? Was two questions, and that was turned around in four hours, which as many of us know, nothing ever gets done in Epic in four hours, but it was pretty right. amazing and remarkable. And I think that was great. And then it just went quiet. Right. And so, we had the travel screen on, we're screening everybody and there's not much going on. And then a teenager went in for, was feeling sick, had a flu test and behind that flu test was a study going on called the Seattle flu study. And they actually ran. COVID test on that flu sample and found out he was COVID positive, and that's when things really started to escalate because that was the sign of community spread, and it was shortly after that that it really started to hit the fan for us. And I think as most people know, one of our nursing homes where patients from Providence actually are are placed had an outbreak, and a lot of the older, sicker patients just got hammered really early. And I think that early spiral really escalated tension and urgency around here. And so you saw big tech companies like Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, everybody here just sent everybody home right away. Social distancing went into effect early. People, offices emptied out. Private schools shut down initially first. So a third of kids in Seattle go to private school. All of those essentially shut down for extended periods of time. So there was early action as we saw that first death. And I think that really set the stage for into the fire we went. And so as the CMIO, my role and the role of our team is really to help support the needs of operations and and getting the tools in place that they needed. And so we went right into our incident command early on, right after that first death. And so daily meetings, sometimes twice a day meetings with the local leadership here uh, regionally some other meetings as well and just kicked off surge planning what do the numbers look like and the early numbers were bad as we started to see it just every day going up 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 where we were thinking we were going to be new york and so we were planning for how are we going to have people in dorms what does the epic build like for that can we do anything how do we build out clinics like inpatient beds how do we make asc's inpatient beds how do we move these departments how do we hook up ventilators so just a ton of time around bed moves and department builds and then just tools just situational awareness tools like how do we know how many beds we have how many ventilators we have how much ppe we have and so there was just a lot of work that went in initially to those areas
0: it's phenomenal what you describe it sounds like the system kicked into action people weren't well this is nothing we could ride this out let's just sit on our tails and see what happens the local health department will deal with it it doesn't sound like anything like that you guys kicked into gear which i think is what probably had tremendous ability to handle the volume one of the things you mentioned in your first blog was that you were getting some telehealth things ramped up. What did telehealth look like for you before March 1st? And then how did it change or February 1st or whatever before the uh, crisis hit? And then what have you done differently?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I don't know about you, Mark, but uh, to me, this is one of those transformational moments that probably would have taken years to, to integrate, but we've seen in just weeks, now a full integration of telehealth into our practice. So prior to the this, this storm, we did have some telehealth in place. Uh, we had a really strong program for tele-ICU, tele-stroke, not really the ambulatory so much. We did have its own service line called Express Care that was seeing about 50 to 60 virtual visits a day, a lot of times driven there through our online app or uh, for people needing that transactional visit. So it was a nice add-on piece to our business in the ambulatory side, but yesterday we had more alternate visits than we had face-to-face visits for the first time ever. And, last week we turned on Zoom licenses for over 7,000 ambulatory physicians across the system and have been really operationalizing that this week. So we have that triple header we're working on of telephonic visit types, which is the simple old school, just call someone, see how they're doing, document that way is being reimbursed right now we've got the virtual visits set up through zoom primarily where clinicians are either at the office or at home and obviously there's some differences in our is structure and devices and things we can talk to there in a little bit and then my chart visits so how do we do those effectively and substitute for that face-to-face and so we're rapidly putting in workflows making sure all the billings lined up and now it's me this is going to be part of our practice going forward which in a fee-for-service environment that we're heavily in still is pretty remarkable transformation
0: it is remarkable most health systems were dipping their toe in telehealth they had a little pilot here of something or a little uh, uh, direct to consumer thing going but no they weren't obviously committed to it as we all are now and there was this massive rush to finding the right platform for most of us. Sounds like you guys settled on Zoom. Were you part of that decision? Or is there a relationship that you guys already have with Zoom? How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so we had that uh, licensing and relationship in place for our express care service line that we're doing these visits, uh, that those 50 to 60 a day through that. So it was easy to rapidly expand that. On the counterpoint, my wife is a pediatrician here in Seattle, a little physician-owned practice, and straight fee-for-service, and they rapidly implemented a, a different solution too, uh, and are doing telehealth. So it's not just these big systems; like everybody has jumped into this in the area. It's pretty pretty remarkable. I think they had to,
0: and I think it yeah. raises interesting conundrums for health systems and CMIOs. Now you have to compete nationally. I no longer have to do an office visit in my local town. I I can pick someone from major health. I could pick your health system. I'm across the country, but if I wanted to pick one of your docs, now they're on telehealth. I mean, right now, people aren't taking new patients, but let's say this thing sticks around. What what attracts me to my local health system as opposed to going elsewhere? What do you think?
1: Yeah. No, I... (laughs) especially uh, with the licensing restrictions that were lifted and things where a lot of these regulations that were in place got lifted. It's gonna be really interesting to see how much that gets put back in the bottle. And then which areas this really takes off more nationally versus locally. So behavioral health to me has always been a a ripe spot for this service. Um, What's that gonna look like moving forward? I'm really curious to find out.
0: The payers are going to have, including the government, are gonna have tremendous impact on the other side of this crisis. If they decide that we're gonna reimburse telehealth at a lower rate than office visits, we'll see everything switch back. There is such a critical moment for our leaders in the payer side as to what they're gonna do and the impact it'll have on American healthcare. I just think it's a fascinating thing to watch.
1: Yeah, so- I can't agree with you more either. I mean, that's gonna be the, the sentinel moment, right? Is, is that payment, because that's been one of the biggest hindrances to this. So one of the things that you
0: guys were doing that I picked up in the blogs that was really innovative and have tried to emulate, although I don't think with the same success that you guys have had, about someone comes to your emergency department, they have symptoms, but it's not that severe. You're going to send them home, but you kind of want to keep an eye on them. What does that look like?
1: Yeah, this is kind of a cool pilot. So that's that's growing now uh, to full scale. So we've had this journey with a couple partners here so we have a digital innovation arm to our business who has helped foster some startups and health companies which we've had partnerships with and they help us and solve some problems but they really came into the mix so zelth and Twistle are the two i'm talking about in this instance when this problem came up hey we want to monitor these patients at home we don't want them in the hospital, we just wanna make sure they're doing okay. So right now we have it turned on for EDs and inpatient where someone can order this uh, kit for an oximeter and a thermometer that a patient can take home. And when they go home, they enter vitals three times a day and they may send us a message saying how they're doing. And initially we had them trying to put that information into Epic and Funny enough, the patients hated putting data into Epic as much as doctors do sometimes. So we partnered, we were able to finally interface those two together. So now we can prescribe through Zelf, the Twistle app basically, which then sets up these text reminders to the patient to put in those vitals. And so three times a day they get their text, they put in their vitals, it says, are you have any shortness of breath, anything else going on? And they send that back and it comes to an external database right now that a team who's tasked with monitoring this watches. And so if someone gets worse, they direct them what to do. Uh, A lot of people have graduated from it. We started off small, but now have over 700 people that have been through the program. And I think we have 300 and some actively in it right now uh, across the whole system. And we're looking to expand to ambulatory uh, in the near future as well. That's a great program. can it's see pretty cool. the, <laughs>
0: yeah it's it's really innovative and that you get a thermometer and an oximeter that's new i haven't heard of anyone else doing that I'm, maybe it's being done out there but there wasn't really the incentive before. You want those people in your emergency department. There's billing that can be done for that. But what a wonderful service. The patients would rather be home. They don't want to have to come into a doctor's office and expose themselves to others or expose staff and maybe get someone else sick. So great program. Uh, Really impressed with that. Tell (laughs) us about telehealth that's going on within the walls of the hospital or just Communications in general, is there communication between hospitals that's occurring that's different than what was happening before? What does it look like?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's been the theme this week. Like every week has themes as you go through these things. And this week we finally put together a grid of what are the use cases we're getting for communication using devices in the hospitals or to patients. And so there's caregiver to caregiver. How do we talk with each other? How does a patient talk with their family? How does a patient talk with their caregiver? And how do we support interactions where we're really trying to minimize PPE burn, which is underlying a lot of these innovations is how do we burn less PPE? And so we went through each of those buckets, identified 80 to 90% of the use cases we probably have at this point, And then what's our solution? So what we are finding is if you don't have a solution, Other people will find it for you based on what they know, right? So I was just on a call before this with our ED docs who want to try something out. They were given some surfaces from Microsoft near one of our campuses to interact with patients. And so they came in with, hey, we want to use these surfaces to do this thing, but it doesn't really fit with our natural structure. So then we have to go through the conversation of, okay, what's the problem we're actually trying to solve and what's the use case? Let's get down to you know, really testing this out and seeing if it works in scales. We've had a lot of great ideas and I think people will see there are a lot of great ideas on how to use technology. What's actually going to meet the mark and scale is still to be determined, but we're finding a lot of, I think one of some of the best stories around patients and families using devices. We've been able to have some dying patients, have those final interactions with their families through iPads. It makes it all worthwhile and I think is what we're striving for. And so, We uh, continue to work on a lot of these areas, but those are the ones that stick with me the most.
0: I remember an article, maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year ago where a doctor, I believe was working on a nursing home, just got blasted by the press and the family for having a end of life conversation through telehealth, through an iPad. And today that's totally accepted and necessary because families aren't allowed at the bedside and yeah. what a wonderful use of the technology to try to bring people closer who, otherwise, you can't say your goodbyes. It's just not possible. So I think so, yeah, this I'm has putting, been wonderful. Sorry. Good.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, in my blog that I'm posting today, I put a link to one of our stories about that that was on CNN, which is just a total tearjerker. So mm. um, if, it, it really gives a good, good feel for it. But. It's been pretty amazing. I think we have over 100 patients in our hospitals right in Swedish hospitals right now. And in Washington, Montana, we have over 200 in the hospitals right now,
0: which isn't New York size. And that's a good thing. It sounds like social distancing or whatever it is that your local governments were putting together uh, worked to some degree here. So uh, yeah, do you I, if- do you agree? Is that what's what's helping here?
1: Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the curves, probably like a lot of while I'm in a meeting, I'm checking Twitter, learning things and, and following the curves. And we definitely are on that doubling slow curve and social distancing and sheltering in place works. Like you go out on the streets in Seattle, there's no one out there. You can drive everywhere without traffic, which is unheard of the past two decades, people go to the grocery store and they're kind of like little molecules that aren't attracted to each other, we keep that six foot distance. And it's pretty remarkable how impactful that's been. It's definitely made a big difference. One of the
0: graphs you put on your blog post was about those curves and Washington did seem to be flattening more than others. It's still, there's still an increase, but it's not to the same slope. And I think that's really. A testament to the how effective it is. I'm looking out my window right now. I could count the cars in the time that you said that. I bet you 50 cars went by it was it's there's just a different feel here. It's not here yet. It's not real yet, but it's coming It's. I don't see it's going to stop.
1: Like Bill Gates, I mean, is such a presence in our community here, and he's such a leader in this kind of global health and pandemic health that I think he got on the leaders here early and really helped. So I think it makes a difference. So, if there's anything I could say, is self distancing works. Help your communities do it and just pay attention to it.
0: So, talk to us more about some remote monitoring because you need to get people out of the hospital. But once they're out, you got to keep an eye on them a little bit. What's working? What isn't? is it having an impact on bed capacity
1: yeah maybe before the remote monitoring i think one of the things we learned that is the most important thing is lab turnaround time so if there's one thing communities that aren't impacted heavily yet could do it would be get your lab turnaround times for this testing done get your reagents in get your test all set up to go because what happens is as this kicks off We at one point had 120 people under investigation in just the Swedish hospitals here in Seattle. So that's 120 people that you're having to burn PPE for while you're waiting for test results that are taking several days to get back. And now our PUI number is under 10 in the five hospitals here in Seattle. And so what a dramatic difference uh, that makes in hospital throughput and getting people into those remote situations. And then I think for the follow-up parts, because our visit volumes are so down in our ambulatory community, the handoffs are working really well between the hospital and primary care, and then primary care now having this digital network to track the patients. We're finding that 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 partnership is working really smoothly uh, and and is helping prevent people from falling through the cracks. So I think that's been really helpful. We are exploring a what's called a hospital at home program and Hopkins started this several years ago and Mount Sinai has a program. And it's, it's a really complicated lift, but we're using this situation to explore. How could we keep patients out of the hospital, right? With everything we're doing. And so we're, we're looking into that and trying to decide, are there patients that are stable enough sick, but not. Sp- but stable enough they could be at home and we monitor them with remote tools that are more integrated with a central team and home health doing visits to see if we can keep other people out of the hospital too. So we're we're looking into that right now too.
0: Any particular tools you're using to help keep people out?
1: For that one, the app we're looking at right now is called Vivify, which has some vitals monitoring devices to it again oximetry temperature and blood pressure that can come back and help us monitor them not integrated into epic but can be in that command center they can observe and follow how about
0: reporting oh f- first of all how about turnaround time what is yours just tell us what should we be shooting for here i'll tell you ours <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my gosh it it is I have spent a lot of time over the last month on lab. So right now where we have on-site testing equipment, it is hours, it's four to seven hours. With send outs, so a lot of our ambulatory stuff is sent out, let's say to LabCorp. Right now it goes to Phoenix. We're gonna get an analyzer in Seattle sometime soon. It's two to three days. Initially it was five to seven days, even including UW here, University of Washington, That was, they just got so slogged. It was still taking several days, but anywhere from two to three days for outpatient and several hours right now for those with on-site testing.
0: That's what we're seeing as well. Not the hours part, the two to three days or four days for the send outs. We are very much hindered in our ability to get testing done rapidly. And I think a large part of the country is in that situation. The testing supplies were really caught From that standpoint, I think when I hear about what South Korea and Japan have done and the hundreds of thousands of tests that they can do, and we're sitting here with maybe the ability to test 50 people, if we're lucky, and get test results back. I mean, we're dependent upon the state's labs and or lab core, which can not handle the volume for the whole country. So we're really in a bind as a country, and I think that'll be one of the lessons learned out of this is how do we spin up testing for whatever's next coming at us and being able to deploy it at scale across the country because we got caught unprepared.
1: Well, and one of the things that was interesting in in some of my smaller communities in Washington, uh, they're dependent on flights, right, to get samples Mm -hmm. to places. And so as, as we've seen the aviation industry kind of shut down, that's also leading to issues with getting samples turnaround. It's only as fast as you can get it to the lab sometimes too. And so we're really trying to get on-site testing for those. And so some of the newer solutions are, that are coming out, great, we're going to get it on site. And then you're like, oh, we only get 50 tests. <laughs> we only have enough mm-hmm. reagent for 50 tests. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, OK. Well, how about the Abbott point of care one? Well, yeah, so that each test takes 15 minutes. And the reagents aren't there, so we're it's it's a constant battle, and then there's been a bunch of epic tweaks, but I think we finally have found the right uh, path with that. We're getting there, but it's it takes a while. Besides
0: turnaround time, what else are you watching? What metrics are of interest to you? What should other CMIOs be getting ready for if we haven't uh, had our surge yet?
1: I mean, there's a ton of development that's gone in with Epic and Tableau for us to building situational awareness dashboards, so. Obviously lab turnaround is one that we have now, just volumes. So we, we have a nice report that has positive cases, people under investigation and total census. And so I'd look at that for each hospital daily to see how we're trending. And it's just been this slow rise in a lot of those things. We built a tool with Microsoft that's available now, uh, their emergency response app, it's a little bit uh, manual, but. The data there is really helpful and it was built for our hospital operators. So, but it tracks things like how many ventilators do we have? How many are in use? How many people are in ICU? How many beds do we have available? Staffing, PPE, days on hand, and then cases and things like that. So that's, that's been a nice situational awareness tool that we've had here too. And the other one that operations has really found helpful is a labor pool tool that they developed. So one of the things that you have to do is screen people at entryways and limit who can come in. And so you need a lot of greeters. You need a lot of people doing fever screens and telling people they can't come in and making sure employees are healthy. And so they use that labor pool tool to move people around, to advertise places that are where they need help. And then people fill those slots and things too. So that's been an interesting one that wasn't on my radar. And from that. We're, we're also having a lot of interest in a caregiver screening tool. So you enter your employee number. I'm not having symptoms. You get a check mark. It's a manual process right now. Brigham and Women's has an app that they rolled out that we're trying to explore if there's a, a hunger for here that automates some of that. So we're looking at that too. But that's another piece that I didn't, as a CMIO, you are peripheral too, but the tools start to come into your realm a little bit
0: watching hr pivot during this crisis has been really uh, interesting <laughs> because yeah. they've had real pressures put on them in terms of how are we going to get people into place what happens when half the workforce calls out sick now half the workforce wants to work from home and how do you manage all that it's been fascinating to watch them pivot on a dime here and really good hr shops are rallying to the cause here it's been extremely helpful to keep the people on the front lines going so and dealing with all the screening stuff too because they do that for us too
1: well and you know i think you bring up another huge chunk of work that a we were involved with is just the work at home move so devices you can't get headsets and webcams anywhere right now so as people want to do all the telehealth now at home they're like well i need a webcam i need a headset i need a laptop and you're like yeah we don't have any (laughs) like the rest of the world is trying to do the same thing right now so let's figure out how you can use your personal device maybe to do the visit and then go through citrix to your remote desktop for epic we're having to problem solve some of those things or look to the community for donations and allowing people to bring home work devices and just building out some help tools. So people that call in, we can help them quickly without saying through help desk. And that's been another big lift and, and change for us too.
0: Have you found providers resistant to using their own devices?
1: Yes. Yeah. I Why is it, that? It Me too. Why? <laughs> 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 it's a crisis. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of I'm one of those guys I was in my fiscally responsible mode the other day, and I was like, all right, let's be honest. So if someone doesn't have a smartphone right now, if we get them a smartphone to have telehealth visits or an iPad, are they really going to know how to use it? <laughs> you know, so, right. But I think that's part of the discussions we're going to have to have. I, I, right now, the financial ramifications of this are just pummeling us and everyone else, and our outpatient visits are down 70 80%. We're not doing elective surgeries. Our hospitals are half full because we're planning on surge capacity. And we're not doing surgeries, So I think our revenue is roughly down half. And mm-hmm. so the financial backing from the government, who knows what that's actually going to be. So I, I think that the fiscal responsibility we're all going to have to have for this is CMIOs is going to be part of our attention of, yes, I want to help you. I want you to have the right tools, but like one, they're not available and two, Financially, I'm getting heck from the financial arm of the business that's trying to keep us afloat. So it's a tension that we're all going to feel over the next few months.
0: Absolutely. There's some providers who are really tech savvy and just I get this feeling more of system or team players there are some who will come to me like, yeah I'll use it when you pay for my cell
1: phone bill it's like what
0: <laughs> <laughs> really you're on yeah. Wi-Fi <laughs> yeah
1: exactly. I don't get it <laughs> I don't yeah I don't know I mean I, I don't know I I'm not built that way but it is what it is we all have anyway. it anyway
0: Let me get you out of here with a wrap-up question. Any advice for other CMIOs who perhaps are not knee-deep in this yet, what would you recommend
1: for us? Get your rest now. (laughs) (laughs) Great. um, (laughs) Exactly. I'd make sure that you are involved early in all of the Operation Incident Command meetings that are set up. Start thinking about telehealth. How is that gonna look? Devices, where are we at with that? what do our lab orders look like are there templates if we're going to do drive-through testing how can we make that as efficient as possible for people so we built the smart sets and no templates some of that work you can do now to to offload the burden will be well received and i think spending time on some of those use cases and how you're gonna deal with them in terms of communication tools so uh, we use microsoft teams for our meetings and and discussions in between meetings. So what's your infrastructure look like for that? Do you have SharePoint sites set up to put information that you're going to share? And then thinking through also the patient provider communication, things I talked about earlier with that grid of, okay, how do we want people talking to patients in the rooms? So we're going to have PPE shortages. Do we want them on walkie-talkies? Do we want them on phones? If the patient has a personal device, are we good? Do we need iPads? how do we get those? What devices, how do we clean them Just start thinking through those situations? Cause they will come up as people, uh, start to feel the fear of this too. So I think the thing I would leave with is right now, our providers are scared. Our care- our caregivers are scared. They don't want to go into rooms. They're worried they're going to get this and die because they're seeing people like them die. Mm-hmm. And from that fear comes a lot of stress and worry. And Uh, creation around how can I prevent that situation and so one of that is how do I stay out of the room as much as possible and so just thinking through those situations now so you're set up to give people the tools would help everybody.
0: Brett thank you for coming on the show helping other CMIOs prepare for this this has been invaluable thank you thank you.
1: Mark I really appreciate it and I hope everyone knows they can reach out to me anytime through LinkedIn or uh, personally I'm happy to be of help fantastic
0: and that's our show for today thank you for listening to CMIO podcast I've been your host Dr. Mark Weissman you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or you can reach out to me on cmiopodcast at gmail.com send me your ideas for shows people you think we should connect with or just to connect and I look forward to bringing you our next episode